Ezekiel 37, read verses 1 through 14 to get us started. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and the skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came excuse me, into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O people, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now in this section we're going to start breaking down. Ezekiel's taken in a vision again to a valley. And covering the surface of this valley were very dry human bones. Now God asks Ezekiel a question. He says... He asked Ezekiel if these bones could ever come to life again. Now, if you and I were to be, to be in this situation and asked by God, as you look at all these bones that are dry, dry, dried up, dead bones, can these bones live again? Our honest first reaction would be no. But I don't want you to miss the wisdom in Ezekiel's response. Ezekiel simply says, God, you know. He doesn't presume that the answer's no, even though to his understanding and his eyes, it looks like this is an impossibility. Ezekiel knows that nothing is impossible with God. And I just want to say and take a little bit of time tonight to kind of deal with this whole thing, because this is a great response for all of us to have when we lack understanding, when we are going through a situation where we don't have the answer. And by the way, you've been through many in your life and you'll go through many, many more. It's a big thing that God does to shape us and to mold us. But I want to kind of remind you of the fact that the scripture teaches that when we don't have understanding, there's nothing wrong with first saying, I don't know, but then at the same time saying, but God, you do know. See, a lot of us aren't willing to even say, I don't know. We want to know, and we want to think we know, and we want to pretend we know. One of the things I experienced when I was uh, over in Dubai was that, that part of the world, I was on a mission trip over there, and in that part of the world, it's a dishonor to act like you don't know something. So they told us, when you're out in public, don't ask anyone for directions. Because if they don't know, they will never admit that they don't know. And they will give you directions. It's, that's just the way, it, and, and we experienced it. Because we actually took a group and we went out, to, we were supposed to go to this one restaurant, we were supposed to meet with this one missionary, and he was going to take us to experience that kind of food and their culture. We never got there. We got lost a little bit, asked a few people for directions, and got really, really, really lost. But they were embarrassed to ever say, I don't know, so they would look you straight in the eye and lie to you and say, oh yeah, it's right down that street, just take a right and then you'll be fine. But at the same time, because we live in a day and age of increased knowledge, as you're going to see a little later tonight, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says that in the last days, knowledge is going to increase. Because we're living in a day in which knowledge has increased exponentially, we're kind of proud of how smart we are. And everybody's got an opinion. 
And many people think they have the answer when they really don't. And I want to just tell you, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know. But don't stay there. Have the response that Ezekiel says, has here when he says, God, you know. Yes, in my eyes, these dry bones look like an impossibility that they'll ever come to life again. And everything I know about dead bones has shown to me over history and over time that there's no way these would ever come to life again. But I'm not going to assume that you can't do something that I can't foresee. Go to Revelation chapter 7. You'll see this same humble response in Revelation chapter 7 by John when he's taken in the spirit up into heaven and he's seeing what's going on during the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 13 and 14. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John had just seen the 144,000 sealed, and then he saw this multitude that you couldn't imagine, couldn't even count, from all the different tribes and nations dressed in white and standing before the throne. And one of the elders turns to John and says, Who are these people? And he doesn't know. And he is willing to say, I don't know. But he doesn't stay with, I don't know. He says, sir, you know. And then he gets the answer. Years ago, when Becky and I were expecting our first child, she was now 20, about to turn 24 in January. But we were expecting our first child. And at a certain part of the pregnancy, which was kind of dangerous, my wife started to bleed. We rushed to the pregnancy doctor that we'd been dealing with, Dr. Cease, and we got an emergency appointment, went into his office, and he examined Becky, and he said, this doesn't look good, and he sent us to the hospital next door right away to do an, an internal test. They did this test, then they sent us back to Dr. Cease's office with the, res the results right away. We went straight back to his office. And as he's looking at the results of the test, I turned to the doctor and I said, Doctor, will our baby live? I love his answer. He said, I don't know. But I do know who does know. And why don't we ask him? And he was a Christian, and he grabbed our hands, and he prayed for our baby. And it was so calming. We walked in there. She was bleeding. We had no information. She had a test. We walked out of there. She was still bleeding, and we had no new information but because we gave it to the Lord and he prayed and we prayed, my wife and I left there and went to Wendy's and got a Frosty. Because God had just given us a piece and we didn't know how it was going to play out. Of course, like I said, she turns 24 on January 12th. There's going to be many times in your life that you are going through a situation that you don't know how it's going to play out. There's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, but don't stay there. Be willing to say, God, you know. And let me also say this. For those who are willing to believe in a God with whom nothing is impossible, you will see great things. I'm going to say it to you one more time. For those who are willing to believe in a God with whom nothing is impossible, you will see great things. Go to Luke chapter 1. Let me show you what I mean. Luke chapter 1. Here we are at Christmas time, and we remind you of what happened with Mary and the angel of the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30, the angel said to her, said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in the sixth month with her who was called barren. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let me ask you honestly, did Mary understand how in the world she was going to have a baby yet, even though the answer was given to her, how the Holy Spirit was going to come upon her? She had no idea how this was going to be. Yet she was saying, Let it be as you have said. I believe you. Let it be as you have said. And she got to experience the fact that she gave birth when she had never had sex. And by the way, the Bible is very, very clear over and over and over. As you look at all the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus, it clearly shows how Mary and Joseph had no union until after the baby was born. To make it very, very clear that this child was not from man, but from God. Go to Romans chapter 4. I love how Romans 4 describes the faith of Abram. Or we know him as Abraham. Romans chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 25. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who, look closely, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I love how God is described here. How he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. How did God make the world? Out of what? Out of nothing. He calls into existence the things that do not even exist. In hope, verse 18, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And he didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. By the way, I've got some older friends that I love to just joke with them and say, by the way, you're as good as dead. That's how old you are. And, and they get upset and I say, no, it's a Bible term. It's a Bible term. Um, and he was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver considering the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans trespasses and raised for our justification. I want to remind you that Abraham had been told over a period of time, at first he was told you're going to be a mighty nation and you're going to have a child. Of course, it doesn't happen for a while and he has lots of questions about that, but then he's told that it's going to be Isaac and through Isaac, and Isaac, as you know, is born. But you remember when Isaac was 13, what God had Abraham do? In Genesis 22, he takes him to a mountain and God has him sacrifice his son. Now, the book of Hebrews gives us a little more insight. The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God was going to bring him back from the dead. You see, that's why Abraham was willing to take the knife and start to stab his son. Of course, as you know the story, God stops him and provides his own sacrifice instead of, the, instead of Isaac. But why was Abraham willing to kill his own son, the one that God had promised that would be his heir? Because the scripture says God, Abraham believed that God was going to bring him back from the dead. Now, we know after Isaac was spared, that Jairus' daughter was brought back from the dead, and Lazarus was brought back from the dead. But prior to Isaac being sacrificed, were there any stories in the Bible of anybody being brought back from the dead? It wasn't like he said, well, God done this before, so I believe he's going to do it again. He had never experienced anything like this before, yet God had promised through this one, well, he, this will be your heir and I will make a mighty nation out of you through him. And then when God says to kill him, he was willing to do it because he believed that God was able to do what he had promised. 
that he would, how do we read it again there in uh, verse 17? The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Folks, i got to be honest with you. Over the years as a pastor, whenever I would preach on the power of God, I got tired of using as my examples of God's power the walls of Jericho and the Red Sea. It started to hit me after a while. Doesn't Hebrews 13, verse 5 say that, or sorry, verse 8 say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And I started to realize, wait a minute, God, if you're the same yesterday, today, and forever, how come we don't see your kind of power today? How come we don't see these miracles? You're doing the impossible today. Well, that's part of it. And I said, Lord, I'm tired of using the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho as my examples for your power. I would love to tell the stories of things you've done today. And God began to open my eyes to the fact that one of the biggest reasons why we do not experience the impossible today is most Christians aren't willing to truly, truly wait on God. As one older pastor in Michigan who's now gone to be with the Lord, he passed away this year, but he told me years ago, he said, God has never let me down. He scared me a few times. And folks, I've just said how I used the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho to explain the power of God. Wouldn't it have been cool to see the Red Sea part? Wouldn't it have been neat to be there and to actually see how it actually happened, let alone how the movie makers say it happened? But, oh, but... As cool as it would have been to be there and see it in person, how many of you would have been willing to wait and not move as the Egyptians were bearing down on you and about to be killed? You remember the rest of the story? God, through Moses, says, tell them not to move. Stand still, and they'll see the power of God. Most of us today, because we're living in a day of increased knowledge, would not be willing to wait we always try to come up with another solution. Or maybe, maybe, well, maybe God wants me to. And we're not willing to wait when he's spoken. And we miss out on seeing the power of God. Wouldn't it have been cool to see the walls of Jericho fall? The Bible says those walls were so thick that three chariots abreast could go across the top of the walls. The problem is, is how many of us today would have been willing to deal with the seven days of humiliation? as they walked around those walls and weren't allowed to speak. And the people from the city mocked them. When I left the pastorate, it's hard to believe, as we were writing our newsletter that we just sent out this week, it's hard to believe we're already in our 13th year of Just a Preacher Ministries. Over 12 years ago, when I left the pastorate to go into this traveling ministry by faith, because God said, I'm going to take care of you, and I want you to just trust me, and I gave up the big salary, had no idea where I was going to speak or how I was going to pay a bill, which, by the way... To give glory to God, not knowing how I was going to pay a bill. No one promised me any money because no one had even knew I was going to resign. I resigned, not having a clue. And we actually have taken in, in donations, over a million and a half dollars in the last 10 plus years. And we don't ask for money. See, God's able to do what he said he would do, and we've been experiencing. And part of what I do is I travel the churches and walk them through the, ten or so the eight principles of a God-centered church is I walk them through and tell them the stories of God's miraculous power now for those who are willing to wait upon God. But when we stepped out by faith, many people mocked us. Even family members said we were stupid. What are you doing? You've got a wife and kids. How are you going to pay your bills? This is stupid. God wouldn't ask you to do this. But we were willing to follow in obedience to what he has said. And we've seen him come through and do the impossible. And even though Ezekiel was brought into this valley of dry bones and God showed him that they were very dry, God then comes to him and says, can these bones live? Ezekiel's answer is awesome. I want to say no. But the honest answer is I don't know. But you know. And God says to him, preach at him. Tell him to get up. And watch what happens. Now, this is not a prophecy about individual Jewish resurrection. 
Look closely at chapter 37 and look at verses 11 through 14. Then he said to me, God said to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are who? The whole house. It's the nation of Israel. The nation says our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to open your graves and raise you from your graves, my, O oh my people, and I'll bring you into the land of Israel. I'll show you and you shall know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O oh my people, and I'll put my spirit within you. And you shall live and I'll place you in your own land and then you shall know that I'm the Lord. I have spoken and I'll do it. I want you to hear clearly and I want to show you from Scripture where I'm coming from. That this prophecy here is about the resurrection of the nation of Israel coming to life again. The Bible had already taught, and I'm going to show you in a little bit, that individual Jews, righteous Jews, were going to be brought back to life to live in the millennial kingdom in the last days. This is not a teaching about the resurrection of the individual Jew. This is a teaching about the resurrection of the nation. See, at this point, they had been taken captive into Babylon. The nation didn't exist anymore in that way. They weren't in their land. The land had been decimated. What, even the few that were left had run to Egypt. And the Jews were saying, what's our hope? We're cut off. We're no longer in the land. We belong to other people. They've been intermarrying with the people we've been taken captive with. Our nation is gone. There's no hope for us. And God says, oh, no, you may look like a dead nation, but I'm going to bring you back to life again in the last days. Now, I want to show you from Scripture that the Bible had taught all along that individual Jews who had faith in righteousness were going to be resurrected. Go to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, look at verses 17 through 27. This is Jesus about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And it says, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, verse 17 of John 11. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Look at what Martha says. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Of course, Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. But look at what her response was. Jesus said, your, bro your brother's going to rise again. She goes, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Even Martha understood the teaching that the individual Jew who was righteous and had faith in God's provision for their sin was going to be given righteousness and resurrected in the last day. Go to Isaiah 26. Let me show you just a couple of places that the Old Testament taught this. Isaiah 26, look at verse 19. It says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake, sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And that's interesting, because if you know anything about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection from the dead, but the Sadducees didn't believe. That's how preachers have always joked, that's why they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. But here the scripture is very, very clear. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. The Old Testament taught that the individual Jew was going to be resurrected at the last day. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 4 and then verse 13. Daniel's been given instruction from God about the last days in the nation of Israel. And he says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people... And there shall, there shall be, sorry, Michael, the great prince who has charged your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now jump down to verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel was told, you're going to be resurrected at the end of at the last days, and you're going to be able to live in this awesome millennial kingdom that the prophecies talked about. The Jews had been taught that there was a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous were going to live in the land. But what's being prophesied here in Ezekiel 37 is not individual resurrection, but the resurrection of the nation of Israel. But now, you hopefully understand the miracle that happened in May of 1948. The fact that the nation of Israel even exists right now is an amazing, amazing miracle. Because if you study history, no nation in the history of the world who has ever been removed from their land over 200 to 230 years, if any nation had been removed from their land over a period of 230 to 230 years, they never ever came back to life again. Those nations ceased to exist. But the nation of Israel had been removed from their land for how long? Almost 2,000 years. Almost the whole church age. There was no nation of Israel in the land. Remember AD 70 was the destruction of the temple? And the Jews were scattered. By 135 AD, there was no Israel anymore in the land. They were scattered to all the different nations. And oh, by the way, did they have it good in all the other places they went? No, everybody wanted to kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth. But by a God miracle... They became a nation, and then one day they declared themselves a nation again, and within 10 minutes, the President of the United States declared that they recognized them as a nation. By the way, when I was at the Prophecy Conference in Dallas this past week, it was during the time that Trump said that Israel, sorry, that Jerusalem is the, is the capital of Israel, and we all celebrated. Now, we, we know that that's going to make a lot of people upset, and the Bible says that, but you know what? Thank God for a president that's willing to say, this is truth. This is what the Bible says. This is what it is. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Now, that might speed up the last days, but, you know, I don't think any of us in here have a problem with that. But at the same time, there was no Israel for almost 2,000 years. There were no people in the land. As a nation, they ceased to exist. Oh, but they didn't. Because as we see in Romans chapter 11, God said, I've always had a remnant. I've always had a remnant. And at the same time, Keep in mind, the bones that he preaches to, they start coming back to you. By the way, that's where we got our song, you know, the hip bones connected to the knee bone or whatever, you know, that kind of a thing. Shows my anatomy. It's real good. But uh, that's a short guy, hip bone to the knee bone. But uh, yeah, hip bone to the leg bone, is that what it is? Glenn, you can tell us, what's, what's the deal with the leg here? Is, is yours attached now again? All right, that's good. So You hope. But... That's where that song came from, from Ezekiel 37. And the bones started rattling, and they just started coming together and assembling themselves as he preached. And the Spirit of God began to move. Oh, and then the Bible says that sinew started to come, and the ligaments and the tendons and the flesh. And when it says the flesh, it means the muscles, because then it says on top of the flesh came the skin. But there was still no breath in them. You see, the breath is the Spirit of God. And even though the nation exists right now and they appear to be alive, has the Spirit of God indwelt them yet as a nation? No, that's not going to happen until the end of the tribulation period when many Jews are going to be killed and the few that remain will be saved. And that's when they're going to turn to him in repentance, as we've already studied two weeks ago, how they're going to come in repentance. And that's when he's going to put his spirit within them and he's going to move them to follow his decrees. But I don't want you to miss where God tells Ezekiel to preach and prophesy to the breath, where it's going to come from. Go, go now to uh, um, Ezekiel 37. And yeah, I think, well, let's go to verse 9, actually. Go to verse 9. He's then said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. 
Now, when we read that in a first quick reading, we would all just quickly assume, well, that means come from everywhere, because the Jews, remember, they're going to be scattered to all the nations, and at the end, he's going to bring them all back. And so we just assume, come from the four winds, but there's more to it than that. And again, whenever you study Scripture, to get a better interpretation of the Scripture, you've got to let the Scripture interpret itself. Where else have we seen this term, the four winds? Let me show you a couple, and it'll bring a clearer understanding. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 8. And then verses 19 through 28. Daniel 7, verses 1 through 8. Daniel says, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I looked, and as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it, it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came from up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Jump over to verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. We've already seen in our study of Revelation that's three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of under whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, Daniel was given this vision of all these world powers that were going to be in, 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 in authority for seasons. And then he was given this vision of the fourth beast, which hasn't happened yet, the one last world power that's going to happen. I believe it's going to be revealed after the, the rapture of the church. But at the same time, how did all these beasts come about? Where did, the four winds stirred up the sea, and out of the sea came horrible, world-dominating kingdoms. The four winds seem to be being used in judgment. Oh, let me give you another example. Go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 4. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Again, we see that at that time, at the beginning of the tribulation period, when all this judgment is going to be released on the earth, the four winds are being held back and they're going to be released. 
when Ezekiel is told that even though they had apparently come to life and bone against bone and sinew and flesh and, and, and skin, but there still was no breath yet, he was told, now I want you to prophesy and preach to the breath and say to the breath, come from the four winds. Is God going to put his spirit into the nation of Israel? Yes. We've already seen in our study that the remnant that survives the tribulation period is going to look on him whom they've pierced. They're going to be in repentance. They're going to mourn for their sins. They're going to be weeping as they come, asking for his mercy. And he was going to put his spirit within them at that time. But what's he going to use to get them to that place? Judgment and trials. So when he says prophesy to the four winds, it's more than just speak to all four corners of the earth. God's going to use judgment to bring them to repentance. And the hardest time, the Bible says, in more than one place that has ever been experienced on the whole face of the earth. And never again will go through, people on the earth go through what is going to happen during that time. As bad as things have been and as bad as things may get when the tribulation period time comes, and especially the second half, the Bible says they're going to experience things on the earth that no one has even fathomed how bad it's going to be. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you realize that or not, but that's what God uses in all of our lives to get us to repentance. In order to get us to a place of brokenness and realizing our need of God and our need of our forgiveness through Jesus Christ, God uses trials and sickness and downturns in our luck, if you will, whatever you want to call it. He uses judgment and discipline to bring us to our knees, to break and say, Lord, you know. What's the answer for me? And his answer is always, humble yourself in repentance. Come to me. Oh, and by the way, I've provided a way for you to come to me through my son, Jesus. The only one who's ever lived a sinless life. The only one who is capable, to, capable of making you right before me. And believe that he lived a sinless life. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Believe that he rose from the dead by his own power. And if you'll come through faith and humility and repentance to me that way and say, Lord Jesus, I need you to give me the righteousness. I have none. You have it all. Would you give it to me? God then says, you have righteousness. You're saved. But what has he got to do to get us to that place? He's got to let us experience the trials and the humbling and he's going to do that for the nation of Israel. They're going to receive his spirit. They're going to be filled with the spirit of God. But it's going to be through a time of judgment. Jump over to chapter 37, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Look at verses 15 through 28. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. And then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that's in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you have write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among them which they have gone, and they will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules, and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now Ezekiel's told to take two sticks, one representing the northern kingdom, Ephraim, and the one representing the southern kingdom, Judah. He's to take each stick and write northern kingdom, southern kingdom on it. And then he's to put the two sticks together, making them into one stick. 
signifying that when God rebuilds them as a nation, there will no longer be a division in the nation of Israel. Now, this division in the nation of Israel happened around 931 B.C. at the end of Solomon's reign. Now, interestingly enough, as I studied on this, I found something interesting that I had never really realized. Now, I had always known and assumed that the reason why the nation of Israel divided into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, was because of their disobedience. But I also came to realize, and I want to show it to you real quick, go to 1 Kings 11, that God is actually the one who divided the nation into two kingdoms. I was surprised by that. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 26 through 43. This is near the end of Solomon's reign. 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 26, it says, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon had built Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid a hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and shall reign over you, sorry, over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So it was God who actually came to Jeroboam and said, through the prophet Ahijah, I'm about to divide the kingdom of Israel into two groups. And I'm going to give to you, Jeroboam, ten tribes. And I want you to reign over the northern ten tribes. And I'm going to leave the other two for Solomon's descendant, Rehoboam. Because of David, there's always going to be a descendant of David that sits on the throne. Now, we could get into a whole big discussion over why would God do this. I'm going to give you a real quick couple of answers. One, whenever there's disobedience, it causes division. Correct? <laughs> because of sin, there's always division. We've seen it in some of our families, unfortunately. We've seen it break up marriages. We've seen, because of sin, there's always going to be a, a repercussion of division. But also, as we've already seen in our study, God was using the northern kingdom to try to teach the southern kingdom. And he judges the northern kingdom first. They are judged over and over and finally taken into captivity. And Judah, the southern kingdom, was supposed to be paying attention and learn. But remember in our study a long while ago, we saw that the southern kingdom was worse than her sister? Because even though she saw all that her sister was doing and how God wasn't pleased, she knew better and she's going to be judged even more. Part of the reason why God divided them was so that he could judge the northern kingdom and teach the southern kingdom. But Judah didn't learn either. And they've been divided. But what does the Bible say? 
that in the last days when he revives the nation of Israel and he brings them all back together in the land, that there's not going to be two kingdoms. There's just going to be one nation. He's going to bring them all back together. Some of you might have heard the term the lost tribes of Israel. Anybody heard the terms the lost tribes of Israel? Anybody's wondering, well, how in the world is these prophecies going to be fulfilled? How does anybody know who's what tribe anymore? All the gene pools been all mixed and polluted, and we don't know who's of what tribe. But guess what? Aren't we even able nowadays for you to send a sample of something in the mail and you get back all your DNA and where it came from and what part of the world? Do you think God's not able to do that as well? Not just 23 and me? Oh, he knows. And as we saw, there's going to be 10,000, sorry, 12,000 from each tribe that are going to be sealed as witnesses at the beginning of the tribulation, the 144,000 witnesses. They're going to go out into all the world. God's got it all under control. And folks, as we keep watching what's going on in the world, the prophecies are starting to make a whole lot more sense, especially when we get next week to 38 and 39. In the time that we have left tonight, actually, I want to show you two places real quick. This isn't the only time that God promised this. Go to Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. God says promised in Israel, I'm going to give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. And in those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Go to Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Hosea chapter 1. Verses 10 and 11. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. You see it? The children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together. So all this is God's promise like I said, in the time that we have left, I want us to go back to Ezekiel 37, and I want us to look closely at verse 27. Ezekiel 37, verse 27, and I'm going to spend the time we have left on this verse. God says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Look at verse 28 as well. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Again, verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God says when he regathers Israel and brings them back into the land at the end of the tribulation period and he puts his spirit within them and they all know him and they all follow his decrees, he's going to be living in their midst at that time. He himself is going to be there with them. He's going to be in their midst and he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. And I want you to see, and I'm going to do this as quick as I can, I want to show you from Genesis to Revelation how the Bible has been showing us all along that it is God's desire to be with us. We've always talked about when we get to go be with God, we got it backwards. God's not up there waiting for us to come to him. God's desire is to be with us. He's the one that pursues us. When Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, how did that even get initiated? Who made the garden? God did. Who made Adam and Eve? God did. So that he could be with them. Of course, sin blew that up, but God wasn't blown away by that because the Bible says before he even made the first bush, he had already planned to send his son to reconcile mankind. His provision for man's sin and a way to bring us back together with him had already been planned through Jesus. But God says, I want to be with you. Go to Genesis chapter 17. You say, Jim, don't you go from Genesis to Revelation every week? Pretty much. But Genesis 17, look at verses 1 through 8. 
It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I make my, make, make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, not just the nation of Israel, but a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Look closely. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be the their God. Don't miss this. When we read, I'll be their God, we think like, well, you know, we all have to have a God to believe in. No, no, no. It's more than an addition to our life. When God says, I want to be your God, what he says is, I want to be everything. I don't want to be and. I want to be everything. We've for years had people ask us, what do you do? Who are you? Well, I'm a pipe fitter. Oh, and I'm also a Christian. You're not also a Christian. You're a Christian first. You're a follower of Jesus. You are a child of God. He is everything. Oh, you may happen to also be a pipe fitter. Do you understand the difference? We need to understand that God's desire is that he be first and foremost, but not first in the sense of one and then other. He wants to be everything. He wants to be the center of your marriage. He wants to be the center of your daily walk. He wants to be the center of how you do your job. He wants to be in your midst all the time. Go to Leviticus 26. Actually, I'm going to have you write it down. We won't take the time to have you read it. But in Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 13, you'll see that in that passage where God, as we've been in chapter 26 for a long, long time on the study back and forth, that's where he warns them, if you don't listen, I'm going to do all these things. And they literally all came true. In verses 1 through 13, is God through the, the prophet Moses says to them, but if you guys will listen to me, I'm going to be in your midst amongst you and walk among you and be your God. He gives us a little bit more of the fact that more than he just wants to be the God, he wants, I want to be in your presence. I want to walk among you. Go to Revelation 21. We'll jump to Revelation 21. Look at verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. So where's this voice coming from? So who's speaking if it's coming from the throne? God is speaking. And I heard a loud voice from God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God at the end, the end of the tribulation period, end of the millennial kingdom, when the new heaven and the new earth are created, the eternal state and all the judgment of the world has happened. And now the only ones that are going to live are the ones who are never going to die again and are in the presence of God forever and ever. God says, now I get to be with you. Wouldn't it be, can't we wait? I mean, it's kind of cool to think that we're going to be able to be in his presence all the time. Well, be careful, I set you up. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 16. You see, remember, we in the church age have been given something as a gift that the Jews are going to get at the end of the tribulation period but it's ours now, remember, to make them jealous. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. See, it's easy for us to say, oh, man, I can't wait until that day in which I get to be in God's presence, and you are there now. But most Christians really don't experience the full joy of what it means to be born again and to have his spirit within us. 
That's why Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 1 of Ephesians, and he says in verse 15 and following, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, my prayer is that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. The hope to which he's called you, your glorious inheritance in the saints and his mighty power, which is available for us who believe. In other words, Paul said, I've heard of your faith and the fact that it's been proven real because you love each other. Here's my prayer for you now is that you'd understand all the joy of what it is to be in that relationship where you've been reconciled to God and he's given you his spirit. And then in chapter three, he goes on in chapter three of Ephesians verses 14 and following and he says this, my prayer is that you being, sorry, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Hang on for a second. Doesn't Paul know that the Bible teaches that if you've received his spirit, you'll never lose his spirit? Of course, the Bible teaches that. He said that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And you also, when you heard the word of truth, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit was a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Paul understood Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, where he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Paul understood that if you've received his spirit, you'll never lose your salvation. And by the way, for any of you that ever wrestle with whether or not someone can lose their salvation, the clincher is in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. So if Jesus says he's not going to lose any that have been given to him by the Father, I think you're okay. Then why does Paul say... My prayer is that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. He's already there, but will he be allowed to take up residence where he's God, where he's everything? And then he says this, my prayer is that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to understand with all the saints the height and the width, and the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. That you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Hang on for a second. Let me explain it to you this way. Well, years ago, or, and, 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 and I'm still kind of this way now, even though I'm older, when my brothers and I would ever go swim in a lake, we'd always have contests to see who could touch the bottom. Well, there are some lakes that are really deep. I actually just got booked to preach in Alton Bay coming up in 4th of July week of this coming year. And we love to go Alton Bay. It's Lake Winnipesaukee up in, in Alton Bay, New Hampshire. And that lake is deep. There's some parts of it that are 400 feet deep. I've actually been in Lake Michigan on a yacht with a friend of mine when I was pastor in Chicago. He took our whole family on his yacht and he anchored off Navy Pier. And we jumped off the boat and swam out in that beautiful clear water. But I'm kind of crazy and I always think, I can touch bottom. And I'll take a deep breath, and I'll go as deep as I can. There comes a point where you have to decide, am I going to go a little further, or am I going to make it back to the top if I keep going? Because your breath is only so much. And there have been a few times I'm thinking, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it. And I've never been able to touch bottom at Lake Michigan. And in Alton Bay, I've never been able to touch bottom. But I keep trying. That's what Paul said when he prayed for us. He said, I pray that Christ would be able to dwell in your hearts through faith, that he would be your God now, your everything, and that you would be rooted and grounded in his love would, with all the other saints, be able to understand or start to experience the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of the Lord. Let me tell you, folks, if that is your sincere desire and you say, Lord, I want to know you better. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3? I want to know Christ better. Forgetting what's behind, straining toward what's ahead. Folks, yes, we see through a glass dimly right now. And one day face to face. But don't miss out on the fact that waiting until the new heaven and the new earth or the millennial kingdom when he'll be in our presence. Don't think that that's when we get to be with God and God gets to be with us. We have that now on a daily basis. But we have to be willing on a daily basis to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 and following, Paul says, if we live or if we've been born again by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And many Christians today really don't experience, and I can't tell you I'm there myself yet, but I, I have a hunger for it. I have a hunger for it. Oh, you want to love God more? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. Ask him. Say, Lord, 
You say you would dwell in me now. Yes, one day there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem and you're going to sit there and it's going to be awesome and all the nations are going to come and we're going to get to see you. But you say in your word that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you're there now. May I really experience what it means to let you dwell in my heart through faith. Not just be there, but take up residence, that you be my God. That no matter what happens, I respond by looking to you first. Are there going to be times where I don't know the answer and how is it going to play out? Am I going to live or am I going to die? What's, how's this going to be? God, you know. And if you choose to give me an answer, I'll believe you. And if you choose to tell me to wait, I'll receive the peace that you give when that happens as well. My trust is in you. Folks, it's time. Time for us to move beyond just saying, thank God I'm saved into experiencing the fact that God's with us now. He's pursuing you. How many of us have gotten up in the morning and felt guilty? Oh, I need to read my Bible. I'm supposed to. You've got it backwards again. It's God who's pursuing you. He's not waiting to see if he reads his Bible this morning. No. God is the one who actually many times will wake you up. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Those of you that walk with him, you know what I'm talking about. There'll be times he wakes you up. He puts something on your heart. He wants you to pray. Or he'll all of a sudden bring a scripture to your mind and want you to go get. He actually is wanting to spend time with you. Let him. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.